In a recent podcast, All Bones Considered, number 58, Laurel Hill and Big Pharma in the beginning, I hinted at Mrs. Anna Waitman, or Miss Anna Waitman, who became Mrs. Penfield and was the richest woman in the world and backed a musical on Broadway. And I want to read you two things that, as a special podcast. I could make a full podcast out of this, but I think this is a lot more fun. I'm going to start with an article from 1947. This is from the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph, and it does not look like it came from a news service. I don't see a UPS or any other trailer on that. This is by Warren Hall. Two sisters-in-law faced each other in a Philadelphia courtroom in a fight over a $60 million estate. As the trial opened, counsel for one of them handed a yellow slip of paper to the judge. He read what was on it, frowned, and summoned the attorneys for the other side. They conferred excitedly, then showed the paper to their client. She fell to the floor in a faint. The hearing was postponed, and the suit never came to trial again. Through this dramatic incident, still mysterious in its implications after 40 years, Mrs. Ann Waitman Walker Penfield came into full control of the fortune, which once caused her to be called the richest woman in the world. Charities reduced it heavily. A couple of expensive husbands received shares, and part of it was used to help various promoters, such as Earl Carroll of Vanity's fame. When Mrs. Penfield died in 1932, a childless octogenarian, she left a trust fund for 16 grandnieces and grandnephews. And just the other day, a Philadelphia judge approved the final distribution of their shares. The founder of the fortune, William Waitman, arrived in Philadelphia from England in 1829 when he was 16. In seven years, he had become a partner in his uncle's chemical firm. Before the Civil War started, he perfected a revolutionary method of extracting quinine from chinchona bark. Huge government purchases of quinine during the war made him a millionaire. Waitman invested his millions in Philadelphia real estate, which, as the city expanded, mushroomed in value. He insisted, however, in living in a modest home in an unfashionable section of the city, much to the disgust of his three children, William Jr., John, and Annie, who later changed her name to Anne. William Jr. married Sabine d'Anvilliers, whose socially ambitious family opposed the match. He had six daughters. John's wife bore him two sons and became the wife of Robert Walker, an obscure attorney who later became a congressman. Their daughter died in infancy, but their son became his grandfather's pride and joy. When he was 21, old William gave him $4 million and told him to tour the world before settling down to a career. He died abroad. After that, Grandfather Waitman seemed to spend most of his time with the family of Sabine, whose husband also had died. Everyone thought her daughters would be his heirs, but when he died in 1904, his will left everything to Anne. 
The sisters in law had never liked each other. Each suspected the other of wielding undue influence on the disposition of the fortune. Not long after the will was filed, Sabine sued on the ground that a missing codicil left a million dollars to each of her children. The paper which was produced in court was no codicil. According to most reports, it was a note found in William Sr.'s desk explaining why he had cut Sabine off without a legacy. Sabine's reaction when she read it in the courtroom indicated that the reason must have been pungent. The contents were never disclosed. Years later, Sabine said that her father-in-law had pleaded with her to marry him. Many old-timers agreed that he had never seemed the same after she married Jones Wister, a member of one of Philadelphia's oldest families, not many years after the death of her husband. The publicity of the suit and the refusal of Philadelphia society to accept her impelled Anne to move to New York. Her husband had died in 1903, a year before her father. Her vast wealth didn't get her much further with the Gotham Blue Bloods than it had in Philadelphia. But she began to achieve her long-sought place in the social world after she married Frederick Cortland Penfield in 1908. He was an author and a professional diplomat, and the Waitman fortune did nothing to harm his career. In 1913, President Wilson appointed him ambassador to Austria-Hungary, and the one-time Annie Waitman, born on the wrong side of the tracks, began to hobnob with royalty. Honors were showered on her for her war relief work and other charities. Emperor Francis Joseph gave her the Cross of St. Elizabeth. The French made her a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor, and she became a papal marchioness. After the death of her second husband, it was reported that she planned to marry Albert Morris Bagby, founder of the Bagby Morning Musicals at the Waldorf Astoria. She didn't, but she came interested in the work of his nephew, George, a composer. Convinced that George's work should be produced in a Broadway show, she consulted Evelyn Hubble, a New York dancing teacher from whom she had started taking lessons when she was near her 80th birthday. Mrs. Hubble suggested that Earl Carroll might be interested, and he was. The musical show he produced was called Fioretta and cost Mrs. Penfield $250,000. It was such a flop that Romilly Johnson, who was associated with Bagby in writing the musical score, committed suicide. Bagby was upset, too, but his feelings were considerably assuaged when, in the old lady's will, he was bequeathed $600,000 and his uncle $200,000. Other critics had other ideas and weren't the least bit hesitant in expressing them, but Mrs. Penfield went on record flatly as thinking the show was a failure because the star Dorothy Knapp could neither sing, dance, nor act. It was the sort of remark that might have been expected from someone who was crowded out of the part. But it could hardly be viewed as a typical feminine cattiness, since Mrs. P. was a trifle too old to cavort about the stage despite her dancing lessons. Dorothy, who was billed as the most beautiful girl in the world, and was admittedly Carol's favorite protege, was fired from the show three weeks before it folded. 
She sued Mrs. Penfield for $500,000, claiming that the criticism and the heave-ho were both unjustified, but a judge failed to agree with her. That decision helped some, but there had been so many adverse judgments, so many gifts and unwise investments, that the $60 million had shrunk to less than $20 million at Mrs. Penfield's death. So that is a perspective from 1947 on something that happened in 1929. Next, I am going to read you something from Ken Murray's book about Earl Carroll. And this gets down to the nitty-gritty. This is from a book called The Body Merchant, the story of Earl Carroll. It was written by Ken Murray. It was published in 1976 by Ward Ritchie Press, Pasadena, California. I'm going to read to you from chapter 14, starting on page 148. You hear an occasional page flip. Um, That's exactly what it is, is a page flip. Like other amateur millionaires, Carroll yielded to the urge to make a social splurge. He gave a party for more than a hundred guests who included the theater and motion picture notables wintering at the resort and several socially prominent New Yorkers who graciously accepted his invitation. Two orchestras, one of them Rudy Valley and his Connecticut Yankees, made music in the terraced garden, and a caterer provided the food and drinks the occasion called for. The whole trip was close to $50,000. It was at that party that he met the extremely wealthy Mrs. Anne Waitman Penfield, the matronly widow of Frederick Cortland Penfield, who had been ambassador to Austria-Hungary during the Wilson administration. Carol had no way of knowing it at the moment, but she was to persuade him to enter into an experience that was to be a theatrical nightmare within the next few months. She had come as a guest of Will Edrington, who had been a close friend of her husband's, and they were having a late supper along with Earl, Dorothy, and Jim as the other guests were beginning to leave. It was Edrington who brought up the subject. He said, Earl, Mrs. Penfield has a special project that I think you'd be interested in. Mrs. Penfield said, Yes, Mr. Carroll, I'd like you to produce a show for me. I want it to be a book musical, really really an operetta. Full of enthusiasm, Edrington said, And she doesn't want anybody but you, Earl. You must do this show. And it won't be too much work. She just wants you to write the book. You don't have to worry about the music. Mrs. Penfield's largesse was inspired by her interest in the musical careers of Romilly Johnson and George Bagby, nephews of an old and dear friend. The only stipulation was that they must write the score. You can't lose anything, Mr. Carroll, she added. It won't cost you a cent. I insist upon putting up all the money. Sounds like an interesting idea, Earl, Jim chimed in, noting with delight the fact that it wouldn't be a drain on the Carroll coffer. Dorothy said, It's a wonderful idea. Here's your chance to beat Ziegfeld. Jim said, She's right, Earl. You've proved yourself the world's greatest producer of reviews. Look what happened to his last show. Jim was referring to a recent Ziegfeld Follies that had been a disaster at its tryout in New Haven. It was so anemic 
that Ziggy changed the billing and brought the review into New York under the title of No Foolin'. It struggled along for a few weeks and finally gave up the ghost. "'You've got to do this show for Mrs. Penfield,' said Edrington, who could make the simple statement, "'It's a lovely morning,' sound like a Patrick Henry oration. "'Here's your chance to scale the heights of Olympus "'and rise to the apogee of your success as a producer of an operetta.'" Carol listened quietly, but his mind was spinning. Without knowing it, they had all brought the loud pedal down on a chord that had been softly vibrating inside him. He had never attempted a book musical, and he smarted at the fact that his arch-rival Ziegfeld had two such recent hits, Rio Rita and Showboat. He thanked Mrs. Penfield and told her that he would seriously consider her proposition. After thinking it over, he decided it could be a wonderful starring vehicle for Dorothy in her first acting role. And to the delight of Jim, he called Mrs. Penfield the next morning and said he would accept the offer. On the trip back to New York, he worked feverishly, and with the help of the delighted Dorothy, he concocted a simple story. In Venice, once there was a duke who got the basic idea of the Atlantis City beauty pageant slightly mixed up with the annual Festival of the Ring. There was a beautiful maiden, Miss Knapp, who was loved by a count honorably, if that is possible, and by the Duke of Venice more illegally. The count is shot in the first act, and according to authentic tidings, is restored to the human comedy of life in the second. It was a naive plot, but certainly no worse than the threads on which most musical comedies at that time were hung. He decided to call his romantic operetta Fioretta, and it turned out to be the most expensive flop in the history of Broadway, costing the inexperienced Mrs. Penfield more than $350,000. When Carroll took on the job of writing the book of Fioretta himself, in addition to producing the show and playing the stock market, he bit off more than he could chew. Writing and producing a show with one eye on the script and the other on the ticker tape was not productive of satisfactory results. The impresario was more deeply involved in Wall Street than was good for him. The current vanities, too, made demands on his time. Distribution of tickets among agencies, replacement of costumes, refurbishing of scenery, backstage frictions. There was always fields, and the tendency of performers to become lax and mechanical are among the worries that are concomitant with the long run of any successful show. But the real difficulty came when Carroll attempted to outstrip his rivals in point of lavish recklessness. To practice a showman to slight any of the familiar ingredients of musical entertainment, Carroll skipped nothing. His heart was in the display, and the display, heralded by fanfares, was set off against dazzling, bold-figured curtains. As embellishments for this simple little plot, most of the splendors of this and other worlds and of this and other times passed across the stage in a magnificent pageant of regal stuffs and gorgeous colors. Harlequinades, high church processionals, silver-tipped ballets, gowns of cloth of gold, ermine trains, iridescent coats for the high officials, 
a troop of gondoliers tossing feathers, burnished cuirasses, and state and church flags. For the tryout at Ford's Theater in Baltimore, it took seven railroad cars to transport the costumes and scenery, the 56 chorus girls, and the cast of 225 persons, counting stagehands, dressmakers, and special help, plus 15 mothers of chorus girls bringing up the rear in day coaches. The critic on the Baltimore Sun was kind when he said, Leaving early, one tries dazedly to remember bits of the plot and fragments of the multiple embellishments and carries away the impression of having seen two musical comedies, half of a review, one-fourth of a romantic comedy, a two-ring circus, and part of a sideshow. On the spot in Baltimore, Carroll realized that something was basically wrong with the show, and despite his feverish efforts all through the night, no amount of nutrition or medication could make the sickly infant strong and lusty. Being a veteran of the Broadway Wars, he was not surprised when the New York critics murdered the show, but he was hurt when they panned his star, Dorothy Knapp, particularly when they questioned the sanity of whoever was responsible for starring in an operetta a girl who couldn't sing. As leading woman of Fioretta, Miss Dorothy went through the entire show without singing one note, which fact caused considerable comment at the time of the premiere. Leroy Prince, a very old dear friend of mine who was choreographer for Fioretta, was there that night. Oh, God, Ken, that opening night was a disaster. Curtains wouldn't close. Drops didn't come down. Sets crashed during the dialogue. Performers missed their cues. Costumes didn't fit. Chorus girls stumbled and fell. The biggest laughs from the audience were those occasioned by mishaps. The final curtain came down on the saddest-looking troupe ever seen. He said, shaking his head with a shudder. It was one of the most horrendous experiences I've ever gone through. If I live to be a hundred, I'll never forget it. God Almighty, the show was beautiful, but no matter what happened, it didn't have a chance. For one thing, this old gal out of Philadelphia, Mrs. Pen-something in her 60s, actually she was in her 80s, she'd never been in the show business before. Financed the show to further the careers of a couple of guys who wrote the music. She put up all this dough. God, it cost her a fortune. It must have been a half a million dollars. She wouldn't use any regular theatrical scenery. Everything had to be authentic. Stuff that she'd brought over from Europe. Ken... You wouldn't believe it. All the drapes and tapestries were made of the most expensive velours, French satins, and silk brocades. And it was so sad, closing night. We ran for only a short time, ran for 111 performances. So many scissors came out of nowhere. They cut the drapes to pieces, the kids did, taking them home for blankets and bedspreads and making clothes out of them. And the old gal didn't say a word. She just stood there watching them with tears in her eyes. And the furs we used in the show, the minks, chinchillas, Russian sables, all real. Not a phony thing in the show. We had one number where Dorothy Knapp came down the steps wearing a full-length ermine cape. And this wasn't just a full-length thing. It fanned out in a train the width of the stairs. Real 
ermine. That's what the old gal insisted on. She insisted on real ermine. It was the damnedest thing you ever saw in your life. And as Dorothy came down, she was bedecked in jewels, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, all real. God, that one number must have cost a fortune. Then she brought over from Europe all these suits of armor, the real authentic heavy ones. And all the men, including the principals, had to wear them in the finale and do this dance in them. But they never had a chance to rehearse. Poor Leon Errol. He was in the show, you know, and he had to wear one of those suits and make a speech on top of a table. What is woman? he shouted. His teetering legs collapsed and he fell off the table in a metal heap. Then he couldn't get up on account of the armor. And a couple of chorus boys had to pull him off the stage. God, it was funny. Pathetic, but funny. You know, Fanny Bryce was in that show, too. Imagine, she was supporting Dorothy Knapp. That carol could con anybody into doing anything. Poor Fanny. She was so miscast. Imagine, they had her playing an old Italian dowager, Dorothy Knapp's mother quoting Shakespeare in a Venetian garden. This was supposed to lead into her singing a beautiful straight ballad entitled The Wicked Old Village of Venice. You know, she had a hell of a voice. Remember how she belted out My Man in the Ziegfeld Follies? Well, evidently, Fanny said to herself, to hell with this. She could tell the show was a turkey. And for no reason at all, she walked down to the footlights in this tremendously flounced gown and with a broad leer, her wicked eyes crossed, and with shrugs and wanton gestures, she sang the song this way, The Wicked Old Village of Wenis. It was a riot. Nothing to do with the show, and the audience howled. And standing up in the back of the theater, the two boys who wrote the song were screaming and pulling their hair. In all fairness, they'd really written a good score. Mrs. Penfield had no complaint about the music. But it burned her up when Carol starred Dorothy Knapp at $1,000 a week. She was sheer decoration, didn't have a song in the show. An unsinging prima donna didn't make sense. But to pay her all that dough, Mrs. Penfield considered downright insanity. She yelled at Carol about it, and after four weeks, he bounced Dorothy out of the show. But it wasn't on account of her not singing. The real reason was, look, look, Kent, I'm going to tell you something now that you won't believe. It was incredible. Dorothy Knapp and the leading man had a number near the end of the first act. It was a gorgeous set, and she looked ravishing. She was a very sexy-looking girl. To introduce the number, I had 24 chorus boys lined up across the stage in one, you know, in front of the clothes curtain. They were dressed as gondoliers and were lustily singing, In my gondola, let me make love to you, and doing a precision routine with a huge double high deck oars. And at the finish, they walked off the stage, pulling the curtains open, and there languishing in this gorgeous gondola was Dorothy Knapp and her leading man, who was supposed to be standing up like an Italian gondolier singing this love song. You know what I mean. Well, opening night, as the boys were singing this introduction number, Carol, who was all over backstage in his blue smock checking on everything, took a last look to see if the principals were in place. And how they were, there was Dorothy, 
with her beautiful dress pulled up and her leading man on top of her acting out the lyrics, I'm a man, you're a woman, let me make love to you. As Carol peeked through the curtain, he incredulously saw them having a wild affair in the bottom of the gondola. Can I tell you if that curtain had opened two minutes earlier, Carol would really have had a first on Broadway. They probably would have given him back his old cell in Atlanta. When Carol saw them, he was shocked beyond belief and rushed off the stage. And he was white, just white. I went back to the office with him and he became hysterical. He said, How could this happen to me? We've been together for five years. I'm going to commit suicide. And he reached for a glass of Poland water. There had been rumors about Dorothy occasionally tearing one off with ushers in the balcony during rehearsals, but the stories had evidently never got back to Karam, and if they had, he never would have believed them. He had a peculiar set of ethics. It was all right what he did. He could lay every broad in the show, And when he picked out someone to be his girl, he expected complete loyalty. Well, that was the end of the Carol Knapp Idol. The romance that had started in that Baroque bed in Carol's penthouse ended on the stage of the Earl Carroll Theater in a gondola. Shortly thereafter, adhering to Mrs. Penfield's wishes, she and her two music men had begged Carol all during rehearsals to replace Miss Knapp and get a heroine who could sing, telling him it was a pity to spoil the show by using a chorus girl instead of a proper prima donna. Dorothy Knapp was dismissed from Fioretta. She immediately filed suit for $250,000 against Mrs. Penfield alleging she had agreed to back the Earl Carroll production only to further the composers, against George Bagby and Romilly Johnson for conspiring to deprive her of employment by asserting that unless she was discharged, they would stop the production, and against Earl Carroll and the Vanities Production Company for the balance due on her run-of-the-play contract. She contended that the amount sued for represented the damage to her theatrical reputation and her mental and physical suffering. Miss Knapp then entered St. Luke's Hospital, suffering what was described as nervous exhaustion. Then one thing happened after another. A few days later, Mrs. Penfield's protege, Romilly Johnson, committed suicide at the home of his father at Lynn, Massachusetts. He stabbed himself in the heart with a bread knife, and his body was found by George Bagby, who has been a close companion for 22 years. Ironically, before the trial began, the judge had dismissed the charges against not only the late Romilly Johnson, but also his partner, George Bagby, and Mrs. Penfield. The court expressed the opinion that evidently Miss Knapp, quote, was not equal to singing the theme song or dancing as the heroine's part was originally cast, end quote. But the defendants, Justice Ernest Hammer held, were acting within their rights and did not, quote, wrongfully cause an injury to the plaintiff, end quote. The only issue that remained was whether Earl Carroll had paid Miss Knapp and the balance due on her contract. On the stand, under cross-examination, tears streaming from her eyes, Dorothy Knapp denied that she had received any pay after her dismissal. Her tears and her denials grew as three checks dated after her dismissal and endorsed with her name were shown to her by Moses Malavinsky, attorney for the defendant. 
When she saw the three checks, the tears continued to flow, and she still denied that the endorsements were hers. When Mr. Malavinsky pointed out that the checks had been deposited to her account at the 49th Street branch of the Irving Trust Company, she repeated her denial. I know I didn't get paid for those three weeks, she said, beginning to wipe her eyes and looking rather beseechingly toward Justice Hammer. Look at the checks, the judge ordered. And then Earl Carroll was put on the stand. He identified his former sweetheart's signature and icily stated he had given the checks to her personally. Dorothy made an appealing yet curiously unconvincing witness when she returned to the stand. She finally admitted that she must have received the checks, but said, looking defiantly at Carol, I have no recollection of them. Before handing down his judgment, Justice Hammer surprised the spectators by paying Miss Knapp a compliment. He apparently had an eye for beauty, as he said, Concedingly, she is fair of face, form, and figure. Although so advertised and exploited, Plaintiff does not give an impression of sophistication or calculating worldliness, but that of education, culture, and refinement. However, his judicial integrity remained intact. He awarded Miss Knapp the sum of six cents. And that is the story about Mrs. Waitman Penfield's investing in a Broadway musical. Uh, her loss was about $350,000. As you heard earlier, or if you, as you heard in the podcast, she was still worth several million when she died, although it was not the hundreds of millions that people thought she had at one time. Anyway, I thought you might enjoy that little addendum.